This evening I want to explore the nature of forgiveness in the context of metta practice. So we might say the relationship of metta practice and forgiveness practice. Uh, Forgiveness practice is part of what we sometimes call the family of heart practices that include the divine abodes or Brahma Vihara, metta, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy and equanimity. Gratitude is an honorary member as well, and forgiveness, and we could probably name others if we went uh, to other traditions, Tibetan tradition, we'd bring in Tonglen and others. So there are a whole set of heart practices which uh, bring out different flavors of the wise, kind heart. And we very much uh, see them as flavors that the wise heart is one, but when it turns in different directions to different kinds of experiences, it looks a little different. When it encounters difficulty or pain or suffering, it looks like compassion. When it encounters uh, joy, happiness, and beauty, it looks like uh, mudita or sympathetic joy. And when it encounters the whole range of things and keeps balance and holds everything, we call it equanimity. So I want to uh, particularly bring in and, in a sense, welcome forgiveness to this family. Talk about it tonight. Um, Go into a little bit detail on the practice that would be preparation for what we'll do tomorrow afternoon at 4 p.m. where we'll uh, have our session on forgiveness practice. But I wanted to first set the context a little bit by talking more about uh, metta practice and to uh, really um, remind us of this very foundational practice of metta, which is in a sense um, bringing us in touch with that wise heart. And especially uh, finding where that wise heart is most accessible, where the metta flows the easiest, and we start in a protected environment of retreat or relatively protected environment where we access metta, where it flows the easiest, we develop it, we build it, and even that's not so easy as we know, or I should say not often easy at all. <laughs> and we, we cultivate that and over time we also uh, bring it as we will be doing in these next days, we start where it flows the best and then we gradually, in the training context, we bring metta into more challenging kinds of context. In our progression, we bring the metta to bear with people towards whom we feel what we sometimes call neutral, the the ones we sometimes call familiar strangers in our lives at work and so forth. And then we also bring the metta to difficult uh, persons. We do that in a training context and then the um, graduate work is to keep the metta going in daily life and bring the metta into every situation, right? So including difficult ones, and that's partly where forgiveness comes in. So just a few reminders of how 
we first really uh, cultivate metta and how this practice works. Um, I like to think of metta as a, a learning of how or how better to lead with our wise hearts. We're training to learn to lead better and more frequently with our wise hearts by in this practice, uh, continually returning to the intention to access that kind heart. That's what meta practice is. It's over and over again, intending to access the wise heart, which we do through the phrases. And then since it's an intention practice, we actually let it be what it is. We say the phrase which reflects the intention and then we let it be what it is. And we may say this wonderful, incredibly beautiful and creative phrase and we say it and it's kind of like thud. (laughs) That sometimes happens, right? And we say the phrase and we're expecting beautiful opening and not so much happens or even more potentially discouraging the opposite occurs or we come up with, you know, we access it and say, don't fool yourself. You're not a loving person (laughs) Or, or, or something like that. But the practice is to continually, as skillfully as we can, carry forth that intention to learn to lead with the heart and for uh, for many of us, this really is a training. I think for me it was, I think as a, partly as a man growing up in this culture, I did not learn to lead with my heart. I think I had a very good heart. I know, I know well, I knew that because I cried during driver ed movies. <laughs> and, and later... No, I, I noticed myself, I would cry at movies off also. So I knew there was something there. <laughs> but essentially my training was to, you know, be with people and whatever would come up with a good analytical problem-solving mind. And many of us probably shared that training and of course one can make a good living at that. But so in doing meta practice and really, uh, you know, as I came to see my own conditioning more clearly, it was important to find ways to access that kind heart, the empa- to access empathy and so forth. And meta practice is a beautiful way to do that. And, and for many of us, this is really a training to lead in ways that uh, in some ways were absent in our conditioning or even go against some aspects of our conditioning. So metta practice does that. It it does that through this continual moment-to-moment focus on inclining towards the kind heart over and over again. That has this, uh, we do that and we strengthen that intention and we also deepen in uh, a kind of concentration which comes from intending that wise heart over and over again. We might say intending the same thing all day long. It concentrates the mind. The philosopher Kierkegaard says, 
purity of heart is to will one thing. And there was a a 19th century uh, Russian Orthodox teacher named Theophane, you know, who worked, I think, with that, uh, another heart practice called the prayer of the heart in Russian Orthodox tradition. And he said, uh, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. So there's something about that continual intention to access our, our kindness, no matter what happens. It's the intention that's really important. And as we do that, we engage in this process that we've often mentioned that we call purification. We, we, we sometimes access that kind heart and sometimes we access what stands in the way of the kind heart. And both we could call uh, part of the process of purification. We notice the different states, uh, could be self-judgment, aversion, all of what Heather was uh, outlining last night that we sometimes call the hindrances. And those come up and, and you know, we notice actually on meta retreats, sometimes more comes up than on mindfulness retreats. There's something about that intending of the wise heart, you know, and sometimes people's dreams are a little bit more, how should I say, intense. It sometimes happens, things, things come up. And at times we can touch those, um, really those depths of the kind heart. We can at moments have a sense of um, maybe resting in our own goodness or the simplicity of the kind heart just manifesting. That can happen and we touch that and we know that. In the ancient texts, the quality of mind and heart linked with metta is, is often said to be brightly shining. There's a luminous quality connected with metta when we touch it. And it's said to be there for everyone. Even someone who engages in unskillful actions has beneath the surface this luminous quality which can be touched, which is deeper in a sense than the um, unskillful actions. And that, that becomes uh, an understanding that informs forgiveness practice. That we can, in a sense, separate what we are most deeply from our unskillful actions. Especially, we can know that as we touch our own depths more and more. We come to know that more and more. And there's also this way that we've been emphasizing um, a lot is that, and, and Larry particularly focused on it, that metta is infused with mindfulness and wisdom. That, there, that we can speak of the wise heart. And much as uh, Sylvia also was pointing to when she said that at first she was taught that we develop mindfulness, we work through wisdom, and compassion emerges. And she said, maybe it's compassion all the way. And there's this way in which the practices we do are often described in their essence 
as comprising both uh, wisdom and compassion. Sometimes it's said that the Dharma or the teachings of liberation are like a bird with two wings. The wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion. And it permits flight. There are the lines in the Metta Sutta that really suggest that combination of the heart and wisdom. The beginning of the text, and we'll, by the way, be uh, chanting the Metta Sutta tonight at the end of the nine o'clock sitting. These are some of the lines and they really bring out that uh, uh, connection of of, uh, uh, wisdom and Metta. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness. They will be peaceful and calm and wise and skillful. The text says, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Freed from hatred and ill will, not holding to fixed views, the pure hearted one has clarity of vision the connection between the pure heart and the clarity of vision. And we'll bring that out some as we explore in more depth the quality of forgiveness, the nature of forgiveness. Forgiveness practice, I think, is... Intermediate or advanced practice. (laughs) Forgiveness practice is particularly to be used when we have um, difficult situations. Could be a difficulty that's interpersonal. It could be our own personal difficulty, perhaps self-judgment. And it could be just the difficulty at times of life or being affected by the level of suffering that might be there in life as we know it or as we hear of it. And forgiveness is particularly a tool that we use when there's resentment or anger, reactivity, the heart closes in relation to something that's happened. Ultimately, forgiveness is about maintaining the open heart and freedom, even in the midst of difficult situations. Ultimately, it's about not being caught by our own reactivity when there are difficult situations and inclining towards freedom. Not letting our reactivity, resentment, anger, bitterness, and so forth rule us. Another way of saying it is that forgiveness is the intention to stay in touch with our wise hearts, no matter what happens. 
And so you can see how it's not a beginning practice, that we want to develop that access to the wise heart. And then we can explore where there's some difficulty when we have that capacity. From, from uh, President John Kennedy. Forgive your enemies, but never forget their names. <laughs> Oscar Wilde. Always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. <laughs> so I th- just to be clear, those were more for the sake of um, lightning then we will we will develop slightly different views on forgiveness to President Kennedy and Oscar Wilde, but that they 're helpful <laughs> Forgiveness can be a way of proceeding and a general intention that we hold for difficulties when they come up from Dr. King. Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude, like metta, a constant attitude. Now, I think there really are two broad modes of forgiveness practice. We're gonna work with one of them. The first, we could say, is quite common in many, many cultures. And it's, the, it's more of an interpersonal or social practice in which there's forgiveness that gets uh, developed in an interpersonal context or in a social context. And it can be something which keeps um, communities or societies from getting caught or lost in anger or resentment. And it's really part of most societies. For many cultures, particularly uh, traditional cultures, there was a sense in which forgiveness could be part of the process of responding to acts which in a sense were violations of the community. About, about 15 years ago, I traveled to uh, British Columbia in the northern part at a place called Bella Bella, which is up near the Queen Charlotte's or Haida Gwaii. And uh, I was invited there by a friend named uh, Patricia Vickers, who is, as they say in Canada, First Nations, or we we would say Native American. She invited me to a a potlatch, which is actually quite an extraordinary, it was like a three-day gift-giving ceremony. But all sorts of other things happened as well. In fact, there were some very intense and powerful forgiveness ceremonies. I might go into that later. But when I was there, I met a man named uh, Frank Brown, and learned his story, which really brings out sort of a traditional forgiveness practice. When he was about 17, he was part of a group of young people 
who carried out some thefts and beatings. And he was going to be sent to a uh, juvenile detention center. And his aunt and uh, uncle said, we think that if he goes there, he will just learn more crime. It will not be a good situation. And they asked if they could invoke a traditional practice, which it was called banishment. And the community accepted, and he was sent to an island just across the water from the town of Bella Bella. And he was asked to be there by himself for seven months. And elders would visit him. And he stayed there for those seven months. He credits that time for turning him around. He went through that process. And then when he came back to the community, they had what they call a washing ceremony, which was a kind of forgiveness ceremony. He came back and he was very um, inspired with what he had learned about some of the um, tradition, which was in decline, but it actually was, was coming back some. He was particularly interested in traditional canoeing. They had those large canoes that go out on the water. And he was instrumental later for bringing that craft back into the community and in fact, working with young people in trouble. And really that, that example can show this, this was a way of responding to something difficult through a process that ended with a kind of forgiveness. We sometimes call that restorative justice, where one meets a difficulty not with punishment and judgment, but with an attempt to heal the violation and repair the community. And so there are these different outer practices of forgiveness, which can be quite beautiful, like, like in that example. And there's also the inner practice of forgiveness, which is what we'll be focusing on here. And that is the practice really of seeing that to the extent that I have reactivity or bitterness or unresolved anger in relation to something that happened in the past, in a sense, I'm in bondage still. I am not free. And forgiveness practice is the practice to, in different ways, work with that reactivity and some ways to work through the reactivity, to touch the heart of compassion, to intend for that kind heart to emerge from the reactivity. And to, it comes really with the understanding that holding on to pain keeps me 
in bondage and may keep, if there's another person involved, keeps the other person in bondage. Jack Kornfield speaks of this inner practice as giving up the hope for a better past. Now, it's really crucial when we talk about forgiveness to be very clear about what forgiveness is not. And in a way, we could talk about what forgiveness is not as almost like examples of what we call the near opposites or the near misses or the near enemies that can kind of look like forgiveness, but they're not really authentic forgiveness. So forgiveness is not about condoning that something happened. We can very, very clearly set boundaries, say this should not happen again, can say that was not okay, that was wrong. And forgiveness is about our own reactivity to what happened. It's not about saying that what happened was okay. It's not about saying that what happened should continue to happen. And it's quite an important point. And so in that, in that context, forgiveness can go hand in hand with action that sets boundaries or that says no. It's really about, is there that reactivity which binds me? Is it there? So it's not about forgetting. It's not about uh, pretending something didn't happen. It's not about excusing. Again, it's not about not acting. Forgiveness can go hand in hand with action. This is from uh, Dr. King again. He said, we are to go out in the world with the spirit of forgiveness, heal the hurts, right the wrongs, and change society with forgiveness. So it can be very strong action but with a different spirit than that of reactivity or blaming or judging. And so I think you can sense from that, from that um, understanding of the, what are almost like the near opposites. And I'll talk more about those later, the near opposites or the near misses of forgiveness. We can sense from that, that, um, Forgiveness is a challenging practice. And that very much like metta, it's a process that we engage in. We can't really um, rush forgiveness. Sometimes we incline to forgiveness and we find there's anger or the heart is closed or it doesn't work or there's something there or there's reactivity and we in the practice that we'll do, we will see that that sometimes arises. And much like we'll practice with metta, or much like we are practicing with metta, uh, we start with forgiveness with the less difficult. We start with easy types of forgiveness or easier types of forgiveness. So one of my favorite ways to practice forgiveness is with drivers. Someone cuts me off, forgiveness practice. (laughs) I cut someone else off. (laughs) 
another mode of forgiveness practice. There are little like, ways we can do it around the retreat. I don't need to tell you the many ways that irritation of a relatively minor, hopefully, or moderate kind arises in a retreat context. Not maybe on other retreats, but not here. <laughs> you know, you know, inevitably there are loud breathers on retreat. Um, maybe that's not minor. Um, <laughs> or, you know, there are all the sorts of things, people who go slowly through the food line. <laughs> These are opportunities for forgiveness practice. People who, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, of course, not being hypothetical, but bringing up examples from my own rich experience of irritation. <laughs> uh, so I can, we can have forgiveness for people who maybe have an overly um, um, wonderful set of retreat clothes. <laughs> Won't ask for hands. You know, but there, anyway, there are all sorts of things, right? There are all sorts of things that, you know, because there's, there's not much happening here. <laughs> and there are many places that the mind can go rather than metta, right? <laughs> so these are, many of these are opportunities for forgiveness. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about how to do that in, in, in a little bit. So it's forgiveness practice is about um, learning, again, starting with the easier examples, to incline towards the kind heart when there's some reactivity or some difficulty. A few aspects of forgiveness. One very, very crucial aspect is that with forgiveness, we make a distinction. I was pointing to this earlier. We make a distinction, in a sense, between the action and the person. And we remember, you know, if we're connected with Buddhist practice, we may remember that, that the, the sense that we all have this luminous metta. We have our, our depths, our wisdom and compassion and luminosity. And our unskillfulness is more shallow. It still can be pretty deep. <laughs> But relatively, it's not who we most deeply are. That's both a teaching and something that we increasingly step into, in a sense, and know in our own experience. As we touch those uh, radiant depths of metta, it's not a teaching so much as an experience. And we know that more. And so we know that, as it were, inside. So we don't define another person or ourselves exclusively by the particular act that happened. Desmond Tutu from South Africa, who was the chair of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, forgiveness says you are given another chance to make a new beginning. So it's really about the, the renewal, the sense of renewal. 
Uh, my mom, who is uh, here, told a story that she gave me the permission to repeat about forgiveness in our family. She tells a story, and this is, this is about the distinction between the person and the action. She said that she was um, one day in a conversation with, with my brother Frederick when he was five years old. And she said to him, I love you very much, but I don't like what you just did. He had, he had teased another kid, I guess strongly. So, I love you very much, but I don't like what you did. Like, very clear distinction. And my brother said back to her, don't talk like a psychologist, just spank me like Billy's mother does. (laughs) Thank you for that story. True story. There, were, there was a similar story that I heard. There was a, there was a, a boy who was, I think, three and a half who had uh, learned that teaching from his parents. And he had learned that he himself was good, but that he could do things that uh, were, um, I don't know what language they used, unskillful or not okay or whatever. And uh, one, one time, his family and another family went for a trip and he was sitting in the back seat with a girl about his same age and she didn't like something that he did. And she said to him, you're a bad boy. And he very matter-of-factly, age three and a half, said, there are no bad boys, there are only bad actions. <laughs> Whoa. So if those teachings are widespread, we have much hope, right? So And there are amazing stories, you know, there are amazing stories of forgiveness that we, I'm sure, all have heard. You know, there's one, one story that I heard, um, heard this just a few weeks ago. This was a story about a woman and a young man who killed her son. And this is a conversation between the two of them about um, quite a number of years later. I think he, the killing was 1993. I think this was just a few years ago. And the mother says, you and I met at Stillwater Prison. I wanted to know if you were in the same mindset of what I remember from court where I wanted to go over and hurt you. But you were not that 16-year-old. You were a grown man. I shared with you about my son. And the young man says, and he became human to me. You know, when I met you, it was like, okay, this guy is real. And then when it was time to go, you broke down and started shedding tears. And the initial thing to do was just to try to hold you up as best I can just hug you like I would my own mother, you know. She says, after you left the room, I began to say, I just hugged the man that murdered my son. And I instantly knew that all that anger and animosity, 
all the stuff I had in my heart for 12 years for you, I knew it was over, that I had totally forgiven you. And he says, as far as receiving forgiveness from you, sometimes I still don't know how to take it because I haven't totally forgiven myself. It's something that I'm learning from you. I won't say that I have learned yet because it's still a process that I'm going through. She says, I treat you as I would now treat my son. And our relationship is beyond belief. We live next door to each other. He says, yeah, so you can see what I'm doing. You know, firsthand. She says, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. We actually bump into each other all the time, leaving in and out of the house. And our conversations, they come from, how come you haven't called me to check on me for a couple of days? You don't even ask me if I need my garbage to go out. Uh Uh-huh. And he says, I find those things funny because it's a relationship with a mother. And she says, well, my natural son is no longer here. I didn't see him graduate. Now you're going to college. I'll have the opportunity to see you graduate. I didn't see him get married. Hopefully one day I'll be able to experience that with you. And he says, just to hear you say those things and be in my life in the manner in which you are in my life is my motivation. It motivates me to make sure I stay on the right path. You still believe in me and the fact that you can do it despite how much pain I caused you, it's amazing. I know it's not an easy thing, you know, she says, to be able to share our story together even with us sitting around looking at each other right now. I know it's not an easy thing, so I admire that you can do this. And He says, I love you, lady. I love you too, son. can be amazing stories. You know, it's, it's a kind of a, in some ways it's a miracle. It's really, I mean, those are extreme situations. Again, I'm going to take us back to the um, food line, <laughs> you know, and the small, the small ways to work with forgiveness. But it's amazing that there can be forgiveness with, with, with the big material. Dr. King says, the evil act is no longer a barrier to the relationship with forgiveness. Another way of saying the, that we have the intention to forgive is that we have the intention to learn from everything. We keep the intention to learn. We can learn, where have I been unskillful? Where can I forgive myself? Where can I forgive others? Where, how can I learn where I get caught in reaction? And it's very much connected with mindfulness, much like Silvio was was saying. We learn, what are my stories? What are my lines that keep me in reactivity in relation to something that happened in the past? What are my storylines of blame and judging in relation to another, in relation to myself? What's my rap sheet? To quote Silvio. What's the rap sheet that I have in this relationship or that relationship or in relation to myself. And there's a way that we need mindfulness to see those patterns. And we also, as we develop in forgiveness, we, we manifest, I think, um, more understanding. Understanding and wisdom, a very important part of forgiveness. Partly it's to understand 
the causes and conditions that led someone to do something, or perhaps to let me to do something, you know? And have you ever had a conversation with someone close to you where you were able just to say, where there was something really difficult that happened with you both, where you were able just to have uh, a way of speaking to each other where you just said, this is the way it was from my experience, you know, without going into blaming and judging, but this is, to, this is what happened to me. And the other person does the same. My experience of that in quite a number of different contexts is that invariably my heart is opened to the other because I see it from the other person's side and I said, oh, I didn't realize that was happening. I didn't realize that was occurring. I didn't realize you got triggered in a way which brought up something very ancient. You know, I didn't realize that. And now I hear that and I understand. And there's that line in French which says, in translation, to understand is to forgive. Do you know that one, that line? To, to really understand is to forgive. So before going to look at the practice itself, I wanted just to say a little bit more about what we might call the near misses or the near opposites of forgiveness. And we could also call this the shadow of forgiveness. You know, and this, it's really it, the shadow or the near misses might be when there's um, condoning or might be when we, in a sense, rush forgiveness. We don't go through the process. We think forgiveness is a good idea, but maybe we don't hang out with the anger. We, we want to get to forgiveness maybe in a conceptual way. And we don't stay with what we need to experience. Our experience gets overridden. Or we might, in a way, forgive without taking care of ourselves. Also, like Heather was saying, a kind of codependence maybe, where I'm very prone to forgive, but I don't stand up for myself, or I don't act, or I don't care. About 10 years ago, I uh, was invited to be part of a gathering at the Abbey of Gethsemane in uh, Kentucky is the monastery, the Trappist monastery where Thomas Merton was a monk. It was quite an honor to be there. Um, some well, um, some very well-known people were there. I do not consider myself well-known. Uh, there were I, there was uh, Helen Prejean, you know, who was the woman who was uh, the nun who was connected with the film Dead Man Walking. Remember, and there was uh, Nobel. Peace Prize winner from Argentina, Adolfo Perez Esquivel. There were several people from South Africa whom I I ended up hanging out with a lot and I got to know them pretty well. One of them was on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission with Desmond Tutu. And we spent a lot of time together and I eventually did an interview, which I published, on his experience with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I, I wanted to read you some of that, partly to illustrate forgiveness, but partly also because he brings out also some of the shadow of forgiveness. He, one of the uh, stories he told 
was uh, that came before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And this was a five-year process. He, I remember him saying to me, one human being can only hear these stories once in one's lifetime. Because they heard stories of the atrocities of the apartheid regime. And one story that he told was of uh, a murder of four student activists from a place called Craddock in South Africa. And um, it was a murder carried out by the security uh, police. And they decided to burn the bodies, which took seven hours. As they were burning the bodies, they had a barbecue with beer. And these were the stories that were told at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And so he said the kind of cruelty that went with the system of apartheid was just unbelievable, but in all of it, people came forth and gave testimonies. He talked about the daughter of one of the people killed uh, among these student activists, and she, she was 16 at the time of the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. She said, I want to forgive, but I do not know whom to forgive. If only I could know who did what to my father, I would like to forgive. Pretty amazing. He said, this is from the interview, this was such a moving testimony by a young person who at that age we would expect to be so bitter. But there was no bitterness. So often the attitudes and responses of the victims to the Truth Commission were just amazing. It was an indication of the fact that people who suffered most somehow became so generous in spirit for some strange reason. Then I asked him, what made that possible? And he said, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> yeah. And so um, he, we talked later, and this is, this is part of the shadow. This is when forgiveness without action is, could be the shadow of forgiveness. And he said, Um, there were limitations to the reconciliation process. I would like to explore this by relating a story. The story is about a man, I'll call him Tommy, who has a cow and lives on the milk from the cow. One day, Mr. Brown, who is strong and powerful, comes and overpowers Tommy, taking the cow away from him. Tommy tries to resist, but Mr. Brown is strong, and Tommy cannot do anything about it. Mr. Brown takes the cow. He milks it and lives off the milk of the cow, feeding his family. Mr. Brown becomes stronger and healthier, and Tommy becomes thinner, weaker, and sicklier every day. Somewhere down the line, they talk of reconciliation. Tommy and Mr. Brown come together. They say, let's put the past behind us. Tommy forgives Mr. Brown unconditionally. Mr. Brown confesses that he has treated Tommy badly and caused him a lot of suffering. It is a very moving meeting indeed. They embrace, they have tea together, and even cry together. It's an act of reconciliation that moves other people who observe it. After the reconciliation, Mr. Brown is leaving, going out the gate. Tommy shouts after him, what about the cow? And Mr. Brown responds, separate the issues. We are now in reconciliation. We are not talking about the cow. Mm. For reconciliation to be true reconciliation, he says, we have to talk about the cow. So that can be a shadow, and particularly at a social level. Some things might not be dealt with. So how do we practice with forgiveness? We'll do more practice tomorrow. And we have um, really four phases of forgiveness practice.
that we'll do tomorrow. The first is asking for forgiveness from another. The second is offering forgiveness to another who has hurt oneself. The third is forgiving oneself. And the fourth is something I learned from Larry, and I I have my own version of it on the handout, and that is, in a way, forgiving life for suffering. Forgiving reality, life as we know it, for having suffering that feels like too much sometimes. forgiving the nature of things. You know, I have a, a friend who often would say to me, I remember when, particularly when there were a lot of difficulties, how can it be that there is so much beauty and so much pain? And yet there is. And sometimes we can find a conscious or unconscious bitterness about that. And so the fourth phase, which I love really, very much, really addresses that. And so we'll do the practice tomorrow and we can again uh, work with um, asking for forgiveness from another. We can work with that at the retreat. Someone, uh, we do something that seems unskillful in the moment. We could use this phrase and just internally work with it and say, if I have hurt you in word or thought or deed, may I be forgiven. Or words like, I have a little bit different words here. Or if someone does something that feels unskillful or that I have reactivity about, I can offer forgiveness to that person. And we also can really work with the sense of forgiveness to self, which is a very important part of meta practice. And this is really something that complements our meta practice, that we know that we have so much um, self-judgment that metta practice sometimes discloses that we may judge ourselves in all sorts of ways, that we judge ourselves for not being okay in this way or that way, or for not having a good meditation, or for something in our lives that's not working or hasn't worked. And that can be very, very harsh. And it's something really to look into, this quality of self-judgment. It was, it's so strong in Western culture. When the Dalai Lama first encountered judgment, self-judgment in Western culture, he was actually mystified. And he actually took two years to study it, to really understand, because there are plenty of issues in Tibetan culture and other, you know, other ways that people can get caught in their own knots, but there's not the kind of self-judgment that we have. And so it's really something to look at and it's something that's really, really workable. Heather and I actually teach regularly retreats that we call transforming the judgmental mind. And we have found it's very workable and when we actually go deep into self-judgments, we go deep into the structures of self that confuse us. The two initial practices to work with judgments are first 
to really track the judgmental thoughts, the self-judgmental thoughts, to really get familiar, really name them. It might be something that if you notice self-judgmental thoughts, really give it a name here at the retreat and notice it. Because we have to really know when that self-judgment comes so it doesn't take us over. And then the second practice is to have a very strong heart practice. So when we do our initial foundational practices, our mindfulness and metta. Everyone here at the end of this retreat will have powerful resources for working with judgments. It is long-term though. Maybe more tomorrow when I, talk, when I, when I outline the practice. So maybe let me end with just uh, a few comments that in part link up with what uh, Heather brought up uh, yesterday, which I think we can see that when we work with the uh, difficulties, interpersonal, our own self-judgments, these are often painful experiences. And when we work with them with forgiveness and with metta and with our other tools, there are gifts that come. There are amazing gifts that come when we engage in forgiveness. And it it actually is something that's very, um, um, almost mystical and miraculous at times. And that we can really, in a sense, as we practice forgiveness, we can appreciate our difficulties more. We can say when we get to a certain level of maturity, another difficult interpersonal relationship. Wow, another chance for learning. (laughs) Ready for that? (laughs) Shanti Deva from the 8th century says, I should be grateful to have a difficult person appear in my life, like um, unexpected treasure appearing in my home. For that difficult person assists me in my conduct of awakening. (laughs) The Persian poet Hafiz somewhere says something like, be grateful to those who have been difficult in your lives, in your life, for they bring you to me. And forgiveness in that sense is an offering to the world. Much like we've been emphasizing, it's a practice which we very much um, can work through our own reactivity and bring that intention to access the kind heart to difficult situations, but it's also a way of offering a whole other way of being to the world. I think I'll close with a, another story from South Africa. This is from Desmond Tutu. I think back to my time as chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. A hearing that will forever be imprinted on my memory was an investigation into the shooting of unarmed demonstrators by members of the armed forces. The hall in which the hearing took place was packed to the rafters with a crowd who were justifiably angry. The tension was palpable. Four soldiers entered and their commanding officer admitted delivering the instruction to open fire. He then turned to the crowd and asked, please forgive me. And he actually, in the actual story, he went into quite a bit of detail about what he had did and then said, please forgive me. The crowd then did something that none of us could have predicted. 
They broke into wild applause. When the applause subsided, I turned to my fellow members of the commission and said, let us be quiet because we are in the presence of something truly holy. Forgiveness is never easy or cheap. It isn't something you can demand of others. Forgiveness is a deeply personal journey to reconnect with the whole of humanity around you and therefore reconnect with yourself. It is essential because it reveals how we are inextricably bound to each other. As I have said before, there is no future without forgiveness. So we'll continue at the uh, 4 p.m. sitting to explore forgiveness. Fine to practice forgiveness before 4 p.m. tomorrow. (laughs) And thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.